Welcome to Mostly Talk. This week we're interviewing another captain of industry about life, the universe and everything in between. Find out more at mostly.consulting. Thanks to Brendan McCarran, Head of Maturing Stocks at Glenmorangie, for being an excellent guest on episode one of Mostly Talk. Find out more about what we do at mostly.consulting. This week, I catch up with our friend Bob Keeler, MBE. Bob is a former CEO of Wood Group and PSN. He's unfortunately got the plumbers in <laughs> this week, uh, so forgive the background noise, but he always has great insights to share as a seasoned business leader. We talk about values, storytelling, culture, the energy transition, and the jobs market right now. Bob, how are you? How are you? Yeah, good. Yourself? I'm good, thank you. I have got workmen in the house just now, though. <laughs> okay. Are you Are you getting much done? What are you up to? I've got um, wife changing a, a, a bathroom suite out, and today's the demolition day, so they're busy ripping things apart. So, uh, in terms of sound quality, I've got myself a, a, a microphone. Yeah. Um, so hopefully we can. Uh, it makes for uh, it makes for good entertainment. It's not a bit different for a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm trying my trying my best to make sure that we can be heard, but um, it might interrupt some of the, the recording a little bit. You're okay. I uh, yeah, I was reflecting. I, I looked back through my emails. So I met you in March 2018, so two and a half years ago. Yeah, yeah. a different world then, <laughs> in yeah, many for, respects. For everyone, and, absolutely. And I was interested because I, I think it's like, it's just weird how you can meet people now. So I, I watched your TED talk and we've talked about this in the past, obviously, because you're, you're known for your values and your, the work that you do with values and organizations. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was just, it was probably a month after my dad died, actually, I'd engrossed myself in work, watched your TED talk, thought, bloody hell, that's, that's great. I want to go and meet Bob. So I, I messaged you and you were just so receptive. You gave me like couple hours of your time in prep in Aberdeen and it really set me out because I was I was doing this interview process uh-huh. and then I was intrigued as to where I could go with my career I really liked your spiel on values I thought it was good prep from interview and then uh, I prepared probably more than I prepared for any job interview because I just engrossed in work at the time and then Lo and behold, I never got the job, but you were, uh, <laughs> you were very helpful. <laughs> you were very helpful uh, to me just uh, to help me articulate on, you know, during the interview, because I was rubbish at interviews, to be honest, and, and I was, so I was really grateful for your help. So thank you. <laughs> I, uh, well, it, it's a shame that it didn't have the right outcome at the time, but obviously it's not held you back at all, James. It's led you on to other things. So if, if it was any help along the way, then, yeah, I'm delighted about that. Yeah, and then since then, you know, we've had chats and you, you got into storytelling. And, yeah. and I really find it fascinating why I found it quite strange at the time. I was like, bloody, why is he doing storytelling? It's a bit random. But then, then leadership is storytelling, isn't it, in many yeah. sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I always use the phrase business storytelling to, to differentiate it from, you know, made up stories or fiction or invention. 
and, and business storytelling isn't about once upon a time we were involved in this engineering project. It's about the stories you create in other people's minds. And a lot of that comes from how you behave, uh, what you say, what you do, how those things match together. Um, and, um, and, and once you understand that concept, it's interesting how you can understand, well, why would somebody take that particular view on what you've done or said? And when you think about it from their perspective, you think it's perfectly logical. You know, mm. you turned up late, mm -hmm. so they thought you didn't really care. Now, it might be nothing to do with that, but they create a story in their mind and unless you do something to disavow them of that story by replacing it with the story you want them to hear, then it's difficult to think that they would, they would come to any other conclusion. So being mindful of how your actions and your words and, and, and things you do and say and how you do them have an impact on others, I think is something that any leader, any, any person in business should be aware of so that they, they tread deliberately and they tread carefully, but they do it with purpose. Yes. And, and, and you, you've talked about your career and, and a lot, I guess, you've been on various podcasts and forums and TED Talks and all these types of good things. But did, did you think you were a good storyteller at the time when you were, you were a CEO of Wood Group or, you know, at the time PSN, you were really you know, high profile roles. Did you consider yourself an exceptional storyteller at the time or did you just know that it was a tool that you had to use? Or? No, I, I, I think I wouldn't consider myself a great storyteller now. Uh, I, I've learned a lot about it and I continue to learn about it, but um, I've got friends that I can meet socially who are way more engaging and more natural raconteurs than, than I would consider myself. I mean, I can, I can tell a story the same as everybody else, but some people you think, oh, it was just brilliant the way he told that story. I was hanging on every word, or the way she told about that thing. I would never put myself up in that bracket. It's a learned skill and learned from necessity because I think it's at the heart of effective communication. And do you have any, because you've obviously, I don't know, it must have been at least a couple of years now you've been looking into stories, would that be right? Or more? Um, probably closer to 20. 20, okay, wow. Yeah. And then what, like in the last, do you have any favorite, because you, you told me even stories about, you know, your work with, um, is it Blind, not Blindcraft or Glenn? Yeah, it was called Glencraft. It was originally Glencraft. called Blindcraft, then it changed its name. And yeah, it was like, even that was a fascinating story. But do you have any like favourites from the last few years that you could share and, as an example of what a good story is, if that makes sense? Yeah. Oh well, that's, that's put me on. Tough, the spot put you on the spot a, a, bit. Spot a little <laughs> bit. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. How, in, uh, for instance, is I was asked to talk at a conference, and the conference was for the Institute of Reliability and Safety Engineers. Exciting stuff. And, yeah. I know. I, know. <laughs> uh, I get asked to do all the the the, the crazy gigs. And uh, Maggie, who was the, the, the chapter president, came to me and said, look, remember you did this talk a few years ago for the Institute of Chemical Engineers. Could you come and do the same for us? I'm saying, but Maggie, that talk was designed for that audience at that point in time. So it would be, it would be meaningless to dig out an old talk from you know, several years ago and then just repeat it. It would just, it would just be you know, inappropriate. What is it you're really looking for? What's your problem? She says, well, we've got this annual event and it's supposed to be a celebration for the members of our association. And in previous years, we brought along industry experts in our field. And whilst they may be industry experts, they're not the most entertaining people to listen to, where we've got a, a dinner where members have got their partners with them as well. So it's, it's, it's a social evening with a, a work focus. I'm like, okay, so 
what, what do you really want? She says, well, over the last year, some of our members have began to feel that they're not valued as a profession in the same way that other engineering professions perhaps are. And it'd be really like really good to give them a bit of a boost. And I went, okay, okay. I said, leave that with me, Maggie. And I thought, I'll go away and I'm looking for something here that can give them a bit of a boost. So, and it's got to be short and it's got to be informative. It's got to be um, educational and a little bit entertaining at the same time. So no big deal then, eh? So I went away and I thought, okay, I'm going to start looking for this. And I'm looking for a story that I can tell. So on the night I stood up there and I told the story of Stanislav Petrov. And Stanislav Petrov saved your life if you were alive in September 1983. Because in September 1983, when in the UK, Boy George was topping the charts with Karma Chameleon, um, he was the supervisor of a, a listening station or a, a watching station with the, the Soviet army, 150 kilometers south of Moscow, monitoring for Americans launching nuclear missiles. This was at the height of the Cold War. Um, a passenger jet had just recently been shot down over North Korea, killing 370 odd people, and tensions were really high. There was a massive NATO exercise taking place in what was then called West Germany, and the Soviets thought that this was an excuse for an, an invasion. So they expected potentially to be military conflict. It was that serious. Now, Stanislav Petrov was a reliability engineer, but he was, like most people at the time, he was spending time in the army, and his job was to man this missile watching station, and if the signal came up that the Americans had launched a nuclear missile, his job was then to contact Moscow and tell them to launch an, a, a, a retaliatory attack immediately. Get the missiles off the ground before they get destroyed in situ, and make sure that we, we hit back before, we, we, before we're destroyed. Now, thankfully, the alarm never went off. It's mm -hmm. a good thing. Until the t Monday, the 10th of September, 1983, the alarm went off. But it said one missile has been launched. So his team are saying, you know, Stanislav, we need to tell Moscow. And he said, hang on a minute. You don't launch one nuclear missile. It doesn't make any sense. Mm. He says, what would be the point of doing this? As a reliability engineer, I'm confident that this is just a system malfunction. Sometimes we get false, false positives, false negatives from any system. This is probably noise in the system somewhere or a failed component. Don't worry about it. Then a second alarm went off, then a third, then a fourth, then a fifth. So five alarms went off. By this time, his team were convinced. And he sat back. He said, no, as a systems engineer looking at this from a reliability perspective, launching five missiles is no more sensible than launching one. If you're going to launch missiles, you launch them all because you only get one chance. Yeah. <laughs> so it wouldn't make any sense not to launch all of them. And we know that the Americans have got hundreds, if not thousands of them. So this has to be a false signal. So I'm not going to call Moscow. Now, it only takes 12 minutes for an ICBM to get from the Midwest America up into the stratosphere and down again to hit Moscow. So he only had 12 minutes to find out whether he was right or wrong. And thankfully, he was right. There was no mm -hmm. missiles being launched. Turns out later, they, they looked at satellite photographs and they picked up cloud trails that looked like the vapor trails from, from missiles that were picked up and erroneously created this alarm. But because he was a reliable engineer, he knew that complex systems sometimes interact in unpredictable ways. Yes. 
but he saved the lives of potentially tens of millions of people on that day by taking that action. And that's how important reliability engineers are, not just for the industry that we're in, but for the planet, because systems are getting more complicated and it needs people who understand the implications of that complexity. People like you, so you need to keep doing what you're doing. Yes. Yeah. And that was my story that I gave them on the night. <laughs> and you could almost see them puffing up with pride at just <laughs> yeah. how important they were as a team. I thought, you know, hang on a minute. I says, I didn't know that story until I started researching it for that given talk. But for me, it was a great example of if you spend the time if you find the right story to communicate the right message, it can have a huge impact uh, on people, on their sense of well-being, their sense of pride, and, and all sorts of different other things. And there's loads of things to that. You know, the, the history, you made it a real rich story because it's, you yeah. know, someone could look it up and take an interest in it and go back to the dates or Wikipedia yeah. page or whatever. And, um, so and, sorry, so what I did there was I, I turned it from uh, an article into a story by dramatizing it. Yes. Yeah. By giving you the, the, the tension by giving you the words that were said inside the control center, by giving you the dates and the places so that you know it's a real story, and by giving you the context and explaining why it was an important story at the time. And then, and then you, you talk about the concept of touch points by you know, Campbell's Soup. Is, yeah. that, is there elements of that in a story, that there's emotion and, and uh, visual, and you know, people think in very different ways, and you, want to, you, know, you don't want to turn certain people off by giving them a history lesson when they're not interested yeah, in history? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think what happens is for me is the, the concept of touch points actually creates stories. Okay. So uh, I, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, once, for instance, I was across in St. John's in Newfoundland and uh, I was there kind of talking about the, we just won a big contract and I was there and I was told, come along to the, I think it was the, the Swallow Hotel and we'll do a presentation to the team. And I was told beforehand that the team are unlikely to ask any questions. Because when senior managers fly in from elsewhere, people are just a little bit reticent to ask questions. I said, well, you know what? I'm not going to do it standing up on the stage like previous people have done. I'd like to actually stand down in the middle of the audience and become a little bit more accessible. So I did a little bit of a talk about where we were and how we were doing the usual kind of business stuff. And you get said, nervous at these types of things at the time. You kind of... Oh, yeah. Yeah, still, yeah. still get nervous about them. So yeah. go in pretty well prepared pretty well yeah. knowing what to do, but no slides, no PowerPoint, nothing like that. Went and said what I was going to say and then asked any questions and there were questions came through. I thought that's encouraging. And then one lady basically said, I've got a question for you, Bob. I can't do the Newfoundland accent, which has got like an Irish twang to it. Yeah. And her name was Sharon Dalton and Sharon asked the question. She says, when are we getting our new storm jackets? She says, a new contract. Surely you're going to get us new jackets. And I kind of laughed at it and I thought, yeah, I said, so I, I made the excuse. Um, uh, the project manager at the time was a guy called Robert Hunt. And I said, no, I'm sure Robert will look into that. And if there's money in the budget, I'm sure you'll get new storm jackets. Hey, but don't hold me to that. And I kind of laughed it off and everybody laughed and it was fine. But I thought there's an opportunity for a touch point here. So when we got back, when I got back to Scotland, I went and bought a, 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 a top quality Berghouse jacket, you know, waterproof jacket. So my charity shop, where did you get it, Bob? Oh, I got it from a real sports shop. <laughs> and, uh, but I got it stenciled. I got it stenciled with Sharon's name. And I said, Sharon oh. Dalton, number one employee. And I <laughs> packaged it up and sent it to her. <laughs> and ever since that day, she became the best promoter of the business in Canada. Because Newfoundland's a relatively small community, that story grew arms and legs. 
and as a result, she became the champion. And because she was in a, a critical role uh, in the communications in the office, she knew everybody. But not only that, she'd lived in St. John's her whole life, so she knew everybody that worked for every one of her customers as well. Yes. Uh, and, and that story just spread like wildfire. So the touch point is a great way of creating the story that other people will then carry with them and, and do your bidding for you. Yes, wow. And uh, I think back to your liability story, you know, I find it fascinating when you watch your action movies, you see people come out, their chest puffed up. It's that same thing, isn't it? And you, oh, you, yeah. And it's, you know, you're, you're very creative um, and, and uh, clever wee trick to play with people to make them feel like heroes, but they are, because people often don't relate to their purpose. I worked as a safety engineer for 15, our best part of 15 years. And you ask anyone, what's your purpose in life? It's like, well, I, you know, I don't know. And, and it's sad in a way because it's a missed trick when you talk about Piper Alpha and you talk about we're here to protect people in the environment. It's like, you know, and people, there's this disconnect really. And they're just, they're rocking up to work to do a job that they don't necessarily like. And it's a shame. Well, that's interesting because I, I, I've asked the question in several organizations, why are we here? What, what, you know, I don't mean that in a, a religious context. I mean, from an organizational point of view, who cares about what we do? And, and you know, what would it matter if we weren't here? So what, why are we here? So when I was working for a large service contractor, we asked that question. And I said, well, it's obvious. I said, well, if it's obvious, let's all write our version down and see if they're all the same. They weren't the same. I said, so why don't we kind of work it out from first principles why we think we're here? And after a bit of discussion, it became clear, we are part of the industry that helps to provide energy. Energy is vital for the quality of people's lives. It keeps the lights on in the hospitals. It keeps the heaters on in the schools. It makes sure that people can get to work. So we're in the business of improving the quality of people's lives. That's what we do. And everybody can say, oh, yeah, so we are. Now, we do it. We're a part of the chain of that. We're not all of the answer to that. But we're not here just for fun. We're not here to create something that damages something. We're here to actually provide a, a vital component of the quality of people's lives, their health and their well-being. And ultimately, you know, when you turn up at a Christmas party, and I live in Glasgow, so you, you meet people from all different walks of life. But if, if, you know, you don't want to just be the oil and gas person that's, you know, damaging the planet. You know, if you really understand what you do for a living, you can hold your head up with pride and say, listen, yeah. you know, I, I help create energy and, and, and we're there to, you know, make, yeah. the, make the industry better or whatever, you know, it's... Without the energy industry, we would be back in the Middle Ages, you know, it's, yes. kind of, it's, like it's a vital component. What's always interesting is after a natural disaster, one of the measures of successful recovery is um, how long were the people without power? Because mm. power is a surrogate for the ability to live a, a normal life. Yes. You know, with, without power, without lighting, without heating, without refrigeration, life changes pretty dramatically and pretty quickly, you know. And we're, we're helping organizations like with purpose and do cultural diagnostics. We've got various tools and things that we help people with. But I, what fascinates me is the Americans are so good at these things. You know, Simon Sinek, uh, Simon Sinek, or you may pronounce his name, you know, start with why and, and, and Gore, how rich a cult, um, culture W.L. Gore formed yeah. you know, 70, 80 years ago. Uh, Patagonia, the same. And Netflix, the same. The Americans just seem very good at culture and, and purpose. And is it too fluffy for us Brits? Or what's the problem with that? I, I think you've, you've made a bit of a sweeping generalization there because you, you've taken, it's, it's the kind of almost survivorship bias there. You've taken the examples that are well known 
if you'd put in Zappos shoes as well, I wouldn't have been surprised because there are yeah. there are certain companies that, that stand out from the crowd. But if you were to look at the generality of businesses, would you see the same thing? And if you compared that with other geographies, would you see a marked difference? I mean, I've worked for companies that are UK companies. I've worked for companies that are uh, American-owned companies. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't recognize that one was, was substantially better from a cultural point of view than the other. In fact, I've got examples where um, I've come across Canadian companies or Australian companies that, are, that are stand out from the people around about them. So I, you know, I, I don't think you can generalize that. I think there are, I mean, there, are, there are companies in every country that some of them really appreciate having a good culture and others just, you know, it's not important to them. And, and that's maybe, maybe I, I kind of uh, did myself a disservice to that, but the, the Corporate Rebels, an organization we studied a bit, I've worked with, I've done a podcast with them. They went all around the world and it's exactly as you see. All over across geographies, there's companies that, you know, that see that it's not just about profit, it's about purpose and values. You know, they've got, you know, all these different modern concepts kind of, they've got, you know, radical transparency, treating people fairly, et cetera, sharing, employee share ownership, all these good concepts. But in my mind, the Americans, when it comes to business, they're certainly better at articulating it or something because all the best-selling books on culture and, and values and purpose, in my mind anyway, are American examples yeah, no, that's that's fair. That's fair. You, you you can't you can't deny that. You know the the ones the ones that get sold, the ones that get spotted, etc. Um, a lot of them are from uh, American authors. I mean, the, the the thing I talked about touch points there. Some some people would say, but that's what that's what we do all the time. But you didn't write it down in a book and publish it and get it get it out there in front of millions of people, etc. So you know, I think I think that's a fair point, James. And is is that is that kind of the American dream? They're quite ambitious with their business principles and, and selling themselves better than we are, perhaps less less. Yeah, so, maybe so. Of. Maybe they see the opportunity to 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 get it out um, more readily. Um, maybe the message is is easier to get out. I, I I really don't know. It's not something I've I've really ever explored. So I, I don't know. Is the honest answer. And then, you know, another thing, you know, we've had great conversations in the past about, about, you know, the job market and oil and gas, obviously, and there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of oil companies uh, in trouble right now, their their stock values right on the floor, you know, the oil price, who's to say whether it'll recover, uh, you know, to 50, 60 dollars or north of 60 dollars a barrel anytime soon, you know, in energy transition, you're seeing lots of talk about it, uh, we're seeing BP make very, you know, you know, a quite radical transformation in how it is as an organization. And there's other examples as well, Total, Enios, um, Shell, you know, they're all moving towards being energy companies as opposed to being, you know, oil and gas specific. And have you put much thought or do you have insights that you could share on in terms of carbon tax and, and how, how an oil company that's, you know, you know, gone through a difficult time, there's loads of redundancies at the moment. Do you, do you have, anything you know if you're a leader in one of those organizations right now you know we don't have to mention names but you know what would you do would you would you line yourself up with how bp and shell are going and diversify slightly yeah well i'll take it beyond diversifying slightly i mean i think if you look back to the was it probably the the early 90s late 80s when bp launched their new logo and started using the phrase beyond petroleum um and it was too early because at the time, clearly, their near-term future was 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 anchored in uh, their traditional business model. You know, the petrochem upstream, midstream, even downstream business model, and things like that. But 
um, the world is changing. Uh, the tolerance for um, you know, non-renewable energy um, is going to reduce. Um, and ultimately, we're going to want to have our energy sources from renewable sources and clean sources. And it would be fantastic if that equation matched up. Unfortunately, the kind of the, the green sources of energy, which are all fantastic uh, in what they do, um, falls a little bit short in terms of being able to provide to fill the, the full energy demand. So how do we fill that gap? Uh, maybe nuclear is part of the equation. I don't know. But I can see that because the world's tolerance for, uh, for oil and gas as a primary source of energy is, is reducing, then if you're in that market, it makes sense for you to want to think, well, actually, we will continue to serve that market. But whilst we're doing that, we need to look at the longer term future of our business. It's probably not based in this market. It's based more generally either in an energy business or beyond that into something else. And there's yes. been major corporations over the years that have transformed themselves out of, you know, if you look at IBM, for instance, IBM used to sell lots and lots of hardware. Mm. Now it doesn't. Now it's a consultancy and it's an expertise. It sells knowledge uh, as a business and doesn't sell any hardware that I'm, that I'm aware of. You know, Nokia has transformed itself many times over the years and lots of other companies have had to transform themselves. So I think if you're, if you're rooted solely in the hydrocarbon business, um, you're either accepting that you've potentially got um, a future that might be limited geographically or time-wise, um, or you take the view and say, okay, this is the starting point. We can't change that, but we can, we can change the direction and speed in which we move towards something else. Yes. And I, I'm really rooting for, you know, hydrogen carbon capture because to me, it, it takes the best of the oil and gas experience, whether it's, you know, you talk about reliability and yeah. safety engineers, uh, process engineers, rotating equipment engineers, yeah. you know, pretty much all the disciplines. You can say, listen, line yourself up in this direction, a wee bit of retraining, you know, we can do that internally. And we can keep those jobs as opposed to make massive amounts of people redundant and, and demoralize people. You know, there's so many consequences, obviously, with redundancies and losing yeah. your job. Yeah. And it seems like a real good time to do it with all the, you know, there seems to be a lot more noise, you know, David Attenborough stuff, the extinction, the facts that was on, I think, the weekend past. And, and yeah, it just seems I, to be. I think our awareness of, of, of the environmental impact has gone up tremendously over the last small number of years. You know, we've been talking about climate change for years, but actually now it's beginning, I think, for people to realize that um, it's something that we need to take action on rather than something that's generations away. Um, you know, e even to the point of looking at things like, you know, people taking some responsibility for their own carbon footprint, people looking at things like, you know, the purchase of electric cars has gone up hugely. The infrastructure to support the use of electric cars is now coming to play. Um, so you can see that's becoming much more common than it was. It was, you know, so the world is changing pretty rapidly in a lot of these areas. And, and I agree with you totally. I think hydrogen is part of the solution, but it's not a source of energy. It's a, it's a way of storing energy and distributing energy. Yes. So, you know, you still need to find a primary source. So, so green hydrogen versus blue hydrogen and all the other variations in that, the, the, the overall equation still needs to make sense because most hydrogen at the moment comes from natural gas, which, yes. is, which is a hydrocarbon, which creates combustible products and greenhouse gas and global warming and all that kind of stuff. In the future, if we can derive huge amounts of hydrogen from renewable sources, isn't that a great place to be and uh, potentially a great industry to be in? And even, and I think, you know, fundamentally the skills that we have in oil and gas, you know, 
project management and project cycles, et cetera, and, and multidiscipline engineering, it's so relevant, you know, and it's, it's about not losing that, you know, so we have that skill base that you can transfer to these projects, do you think? You, you would think, you would think, given that we're talking about process plant and equipment and the, all the kind of stuff that, uh, that, that people know and, and, and know how to operate well, and control systems, et cetera, you would think. Um, but these same skills exist in the automotive industry. Yes. They exist in the manufacturing industries. They exist in other industries as well. So the core skills, the core engineering project management skills and that, I, there's no divine right that these have to be sourced from the, the oil and gas industry. They can be sourced from wherever people need them to bring them together. And I, I you know, back to the, the battery cars, to me that's, in some ways it feels like another consumer drive towards, you know, another product that's going to cure the world's problems. But essentially, to, to make a, a battery, an electric vehicle, it takes, it's a heck of a blight on the planet. You know, yeah. Bolivia, the amount of minerals that you'll need to, yeah. to take out of, you know, zinc and all these sort of compounds for battery technology. And it's just like, you know, I, I don't know. I think Elon Musk's rooting for it, obviously, for, for obvious reasons. But to me, it's about the individuals in cycling more or walking more. And, and I don't know. I, I just, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And I actually think the, the kind of the, the lockdown we're in just now has, has reset the clock a little bit in terms of the ability to avoid unnecessary travel. Yes. You know, I've not been on a plane since March and I've not missed it. Yeah. You know? yeah. And yet I used to travel, you know, used to have gold cards for all the different airlines and things like that because I was traveling so much. Um, so it's proven to me that most of the traveling I was doing was, it was important to me, but it wasn't necessary in the sense that there were other alternatives available. And I think this is what has shown us there is that um, we don't need to do as much of that as we did in the past. And of course, it, it brings all sorts of questions about do we need offices in the same way as we did before or do we need a different model? And who knows what that future is, but it feels as though it doesn't have to be the same as what we came from in the past. And it seems to me like you know, a real shame in some respects because you've got you know, kids yourself and you can relate to younger people and how much how much you know benefit you got out of seeing the world, you know, and, and you were fortunate just your leadership positions, you're able to do these things. But you know, that'll ultimately change <laughs> the nature of society if you can't travel anymore, you know. Will yeah. we be you, you do misrepresent misrepresent business travel as well, James, however, you know, so it's it, hotels it, and uh, airports. It's hotels, <laughs> airports and meetings and you know, I, I did see the pyramids in Cairo through the back window of a taxi as we drove across the <laughs> yeah. break to our next meeting. Um, you know, the time I spent in, in Colombia, the time I, I spent in, in various other countries, a lot of it was actually purely business related. So um, because of the family, the desire to get back home meant that you couldn't say, well, I'm going to spend another three days doing some touristy things on my own uh, whilst my wife and children are, are, are yeah. back at home. So a I, lot of that travel was 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 much less exotic than than you might think. Yeah. I uh, I was very unlucky in love. Uh, you know, I didn't meet my wife until my late twenties. So whenever I did business travel, I made a point of trying to take holidays. And I had a good trick. I flew business class to Alaska once with BP. Yeah. And then instead of flying back business, I just cancelled the uh, the flight. I saved the company a grand. And then I backpacked sort of around America and then got an economy flight back and saved the money. So it was, uh, yeah. I was lucky to do it. But <laughs> I, could have, I could have done that, but I would have got a divorce at the end of it, which was, <laughs> yeah. wasn't part of the business plan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
You're listening to Mostly Talk. If you're enjoying the show, why not leave us a review? Thanks for listening. Now back to it. No, it's it's uh, it's good fun. But what do you what advice would you give to you know the people going into universities right now? You know what what how would you because you you talked about this before. You kind of meandered your way through life in some respects, but you're very successful. You know you got up to the top of you know big organisations, but as a young Bob or you know, even to one of your kids, what do you say to them in terms of, you know, do you follow your passions? Is it, is it, you know, this is where you think the jobs are or. Yeah. Stuff, I, I mean, I, I'd love to say, you know, find, find something you really love and make it your life's work. Uh, as, as Steve Jobs did in his famous Stanford university commencement address and others have said as well, but uh, you also have to play the ball that's in front of you. So sometimes you you know you'd love to say I'd like to go and work with dolphins, uh, you know, in the Red Sea and things like that. Well, yeah, you don't really have that choice at the moment because you know you from where you are. So for me, it's always um, be prepared to change direction. Be prepared to make choices. Don't feel as though by making a choice it has to be forever. Hmm. So be willing to try something uh, in the knowledge that it might not be the right thing for you, but as long as you learn on the on the way, and you cut and you gather some skills, you can take them with you onto your next choice. So it's not about meandering as such; it's about it's about harvesting harvesting skills and experience on the way. But you yes. don't necessarily have to have to have a very clear view and say, "I know exactly what I'm going to do." It's okay not to know what you're going to do but it's not okay to do nothing about it. So you've actually got to start and you've got to learn and you've got to grow and you've got to make choices and you've got to move. And whilst you're doing all these things, you might find something that you really love and you're really good at, or you might not, Hmm. but you might also find something that economically allows you to fund the lifestyle that that you need and and want or whatever. Um, And you'll meet lots of people on the way and lots of crazy characters on the way. And as a result, you'll get a lot of fun out of that as well. And, that's much better than sitting back thinking I'm going to do nothing because I don't know what it is I want to do. You know, what fascinates me is, you know, young, I don't know, a 16 year old, 15 year old, and they go, I really want to be a doctor, you know, and they're hell bent on being a doctor. And lo and behold, they become a doctor, you know, they're so driven and they get there. Whereas I, I couldn't see myself being that way. I was very, I was a farmer's son. Right. And I just went, you know, what? I like maths and physics. I'll stick with that. I spoke to a guy who went to university. Oh, I'm not going to try that for a laugh. And then, and then lo and behold, I did all right at university, got good experiences out of it. And it just sort of fell into things, but I kept my options open, I felt. And I felt yeah. engineering is very good for that in a way. Um, I think it is. I think, I think it's, a, I mean, I'm biased though. I'm biased because I'm also an engineer to, to trade. So um, somebody else might say that having a good background in accounts and finance um, allows you to open doors into virtually every business as well. So, I, you know, but, I, but, I, but I, do, I do think that engineering is a pretty solid basis on which to, to move forward yeah. i started reading a book and I'm, i'd be yeah i can't i can't talk about wax lyrical about it yet but it's, it is listed on like the fd's best business books and all that sort of stuff so it's uh it's called uh, it's daniel suskind and it's the world without work and it's about how the bio ai and how ai is having a significant market uh, impact in the job market and it's it's you know you it's careers that you wouldn't necessarily think and and I suppose some people realise this already. It's 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 common practice in some professions that AI is used as a tool to I don't know terms and conditions for a document, for example, yeah, yeah, or a yeah, legal yeah. document. Yeah, yeah. You know, instead of having a, stuff, yeah. And and there's a wee app there that can scan it. Is it does it is there any red flags there in terms of you know legal issues? Um, but they said 
Daniel Susskind makes the point early on in the book about about AI, and it's not the low-skilled, low-paid jobs, and skilled is is not a very polite term, but non-academic jobs as such. But a waiter is a highly skilled job, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a, wait, like, a low-skilled, low-paid jobs are fine. High-skilled, high-paid jobs are fine. But it's that in the middle, all the jobs, you know, there's, it's the non-routine tasks that humans will do, but routine tasks, they'll be all ripped out and, and done by, you know, by bots and by, by various computer programs, etc. But I just think it's fascinating because I've got young kids. Like, you know, it's such a good book in terms of the history lessons. And okay. and I've got an interest in farming, obviously. So 80% of the jobs back in the day used to be in farms. And it was 80% yeah. in factories. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's 80% service industry. Yeah. And it's like, you know, where are the jobs of the future? So it goes through all these different scenarios and makes recommendations, etc. But it just talks about how computers have evolved so much. And, and you know, Kasparov, the chess player, you know, he got beaten famously like, by... Blue, yeah. And yeah, you know it probably a lot better than I do. And, and then there's this Chinese game called Go, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, recently, and instead of having 12 opening moves, like a chessboard does. It's massive amounts, yeah. Massive yeah, yeah. amounts. And, and then, you know, I don't know however long, maybe five years later, the, the technology was there that it could beat this Chinese game. And it's just exponential growth. I can't, you know, I, I can't remember the the law or the rule for how 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 much computers improve over time. Yeah, it's, but it's kind of Moore's law. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, it is fascinating, but it's also scary in a way. You know, and and you know, your love of art, I find interesting because you know, there's that talk of you know, once all these sort of technical jobs go then the thing that's left for humans to do is is make relationships and 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 make art and music and all these other things that are getting a hard time right now and and they'll have their day when when we when a lot of our work is done autonomously (laughs) and so it might be yeah hopefully i mean you know there's a a future there where where 80 percent of the jobs are potentially uh, not in critical industries that are associated with critical things like energy production or food production or um, but they're in, um, you know, care and entertainment and other areas that are good for the soul and good for humanity, but not necessarily, you know, traditional in terms of the number of jobs that were there in the past. When, when, you know, I, I'm a kind of slight optimist here, like, like you talked about, 80% of the jobs uh, used to be on the farm work because it, the work needed to be done hmm. um, to feed the people. So if you had a, a field of, of, of wheat, you needed people in there in large numbers to be able to harvest it and stick it into sheaths and get it get it back and do the threshing and all that kind of stuff isn't it a great thing that we can do that with a with a single machine now or maybe two people in, in, in massive areas um i i read a book back in the 80s by a guy called i think it was Fiegenbaum, called the fifth generation and it was predicting at the time how artificial intelligence will someday be able to create things like bots that can sit and speak to old people in homes and keep them engaged and keep them encouraged and things like that. And it's only now that we're beginning to see the technology that's available to be able to, to do some of these things in a non-artificial way, in a way that feels almost genuine. And yes. I, I think these are, are, are fantastic advances for society, which free us up from doing stuff that is actually not really taxing our brain or adding any value or forcing us to make relationships. So I, you know, I, I think that I'm generally more optimistic than pessimistic about the use of AI. And if it's replacing jobs that can be replaced, it allows people to move on to do other things 
mm. that are that are more spontaneous and creative that ultimately uses more of their humanity. I do like to even you know VR is a bit gimmicky, you know, and and it's very hard to see applications for VR. And it, you know, I've kind of swithered. I don't know if I like it or not. But then I worked on this nuclear project as a greenfield site, and you know, no one had ever seen this site before. It was on the drawing board for probably twenty years now in the nuclear industry, <laughs> but then. Uh, they really, to see it, we've put it into VR, we've got the PDMS model, the CAD, put it into VR, we coloured it all nicely to make it look fairly realistic. It didn't take time at all. The VR headset, to get a walk and design around it, who'd been walking on it for five years, working on it for five years, he's just fascinated by his own creation. And, and it's like, wow, this is quite a useful application because we're running a risk workshop and going through you know, different procedures and, and working out, is this a big risk, et cetera. And it, it helped people visualize it really powerfully. And it was like, wow, that's a good application. And then you hear about, you know, people with autism using VR headsets and it's a you know, therapeutic type thing. And, and yeah. it's like, there's good that'll come from these technologies. It's yeah. just, um, there's always fear mongering, I guess. But they're being used for things like pain reduction because they, because they absorb your senses. Um, if you're going through some sort of painful procedure that you, you can't avoid the pain, rather than using drugs, they can distract you using virtual reality and augmented reality and things like that. What a great way to use technology, you know? Yes. Avoid yeah. people having to take drugs and yet relieve them of, of unnecessary pain, for instance. So again, there's, there's technologies out there that we've not yet managed to find the best uses for. Yes. So I, I think a lot of this moves forward in terms of, of once we actually understand that you can use this for really good things, then people say, oh, isn't this fantastic? You know, and it's it's just I I think you know society moves forward in steps. You know, the the need follows the application. That you know, who who would have thought we needed smartphones um, before kind of two thousand and seven? Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, a, a phone, a computer in your hand, it does all these things. No, I don't need that. I just need a phone. And then and I, now, I and now, it, now now you can't live without it. You know. And it is like an alien concept back in the day to, to be carrying around a computer with you all the time that has yeah. all the answers and now you do. And, and, and people, I, I don't know, it's, it's a shame. I've, I watched the you know, Social Dilemma, the, the program. I don't know if you watched the documentary. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting just how, how powerful the phones are at manipulating your human behaviors. You know, you're, you're looking for notifications, you know. And, yeah. and I've went through it. I've went full cycle of having it by my bedside. It's the first thing I see in the morning, the last thing I see at night. Just to try and it's actually therapy just to get a break from the bloody thing and, and turn yeah. it off or spend time with your family and you're really present. But you kind of you fall into these sort of bad behaviors for a while and then you realize, you know, you, you want to sort of, sort of correct them a bit because yeah. it doesn't help you. <laughs> no, I, I, again, there's, there's, there's technology for, for good and there's technology that becomes a burden. And it's, I mean, the same argument was made about television when it first started broadcasting. Yes. You know, people are sitting watching television. They should be out doing some other things. You know, they should be out you know, painting fences or uh, building okay. houses or do, doing whatever. And yeah. isn't it the blight on society that they can sit and watch television, you know? And I, I don't know, one of my favourite movies, or probably my favourite movie, Bush Cassidy and Sundance Kid. And there's this scene in it where there's a guy trying to sell a bicycle. Yeah. And it's the same thing, you introduce a new technology and everyone's, you know, so the odd character is up in arms about it. And, and I think one thing that people... Did you ever see the Banksy artwork where there's a couple embracing and they're staring at each other's smart, their own smartphone? Yeah. And it's, you know, you're distracted, obviously, yeah. by, by technology. Phenomenal bit of art. And it's like, uh, back in the day, people would be staring at newspapers. My dad used to read a newspaper yeah. at times and, and it wasn't always present. 
with us, he was a great dad, but it's like it's kind of no different in a way, you know. It's just yeah, yeah exactly. Just 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 a different uh, generation, a different incarnation of it. There's a, there's a great little video that we use sometimes in our training exercises. Um, it's if you, if you look it up on YouTube, it's called Misunderstood, and it's an Apple uh, ad, and uh, it's about this teenager effectively going away with the family for Christmas to visit the grandparents, and he's got his head in his phone. And then it shows the family interacting in various ways. And every time you look at this teenager, he's got his phone with him and he always seems to be immersed in his phone. And then on Christmas morning, as it seems, the family are all sitting around and he walks up to the television and he switches on the television and he plays the video of the family that he's been making whilst he's been visiting the family. And it's a lovely, you know, it's, it's smaltzy and it's emotional, all that kind of stuff. And the underlying message is, you know, these, these phones can actually do some really good stuff and just because yes. you give, just because you buy one for a thousand dollars and give it to a teenager, it's not going to make the teenager a recluse. They might actually be, you know, a good person to be with, etc. And I thought, what a great message in a, I think it's a two minute, two minute TV commercial. Um, but you know, it's a fantastic bit of storytelling again because it goes through and it gets you thinking one thing, and then it gives you a surprise at the end, and it reveals something for you that you oh wow and here's me talking about it now so it clearly works you know yeah this uh, this book again uh, the world without work you'll love because it's got loads of um loads of history there so there's other stories about ned luddite yeah. and is, is it the weavers when you know when um you know obviously it was a very manual process before then yeah. then they brought in the the some level of autonomy and machinery for it yeah and ned, ned luddite was up in arms at it and they formed the luddites and I don't know if it's, I don't know how factual it is, and maybe he makes that point in the book himself. But, but you know, even today, people who don't embrace technology, they're called Luddites, and it's yeah, <laughs> the, the name has stuck. You know, it's great. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting that it was the, the 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 weaving machines that became so sophisticated that they ended up using punched cards to 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 generate patterns, and it, those punched cards were almost a predecessor for programmable computers. So if wow. you combine that with the, the difference engine that Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace and that were working on, along with the technology from the Jacquard uh, um, weaving looms, you put it together, you've got the basis of effectively what would become the world's first programmable computer. And there's so much history there, even you know, a city like Dundee, German journalism. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and big on the IT as well. But would you know this, is it Jute? It was famously put on the chuck wagons in you know, so it came due from Dundee, you've got flown to the States to be put on the chuck wagons. And and it's just, uh, well, I'm, I was uh, born outside Dundee. Uh, I used to be quite embarrassed the fact I was from Dundee originally, but I suppose I'm a, a close to Dundee, you know. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's a great place. And, and again, history of Scottish cities and things is phenomenal. It's really powerful. They've, they've all got something to add, but like most Scottish people, we, we find something and we want to take credit for it and things like that. You know, we invented this, we invented that, etc. It doesn't really matter in the big scheme of things, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of a lot of the the country to be proud of in, in many ways. And like any country, lots of things that we should be pretty ashamed of in terms of other things <laughs> yes. that happened in the past as well. Yeah. <laughs> Excessive amounts of whiskey is another thing that was. Well, about. yeah, yeah, you know, uh, you know, our, our position in, in slavery and all that over the years and that is, you know, you know, doesn't bear uh, good good analysis in any way at all, you know. And then the final one, just to give a bit of. Uh, value or insight to people who are listening you know the job market right now challenging right if you've lost your job what's your what's your top tips do you have anything that you could say just to you know, reassure people or boost them a bit with 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult because it's easy to say to people, well, just keep going and things might turn out better in the same way. You know, I've applied for 70 jobs and 55 of them, I got no response. And the others were just, uh, no thanks, not hiring at the moment here. Um, I've done work in the past with groups of people that have been out of work um, potentially for, for many, many months. I did work during the last downturn with a group that was called the, the Executive Springboard Project, which was a springboard back in, into work, etc. And sat down and asked them to look at it like a project and say, like, look at it like a project, let's look at all the things you need to do to be properly prepared to re-enter the job market in terms of your targeting, in terms of your marketing, in terms of how you're going to sell yourself, in terms of how you're going to prepare for any written or online submissions, how you're going to prepare for any interviews, how you're going to get yourself match fit. And when we went through it all, we said, look, does everybody think they've done everything they can? And some people come back and said, Bob, having looked at this, I've done about 20% of what I should be doing. I've just never thought about it in those terms before. So taking a step back and thinking, for instance, when you go into an interview, if you're lucky enough to get to the stage of an interview, you're not there to show that you're the cleverest person. You're not there to show that you're the best qualified. You're there to show you're the person that can be trusted with the role. So it's about trust. So what do you need to do to build trust? And how do you take the examples with you that build trust? And when you think about it logically, there's methodologies for that. And I've been on the other side of the table interviewing people. I'm thinking, on paper, this person you know, nails what we're looking for. But in practice, nah, didn't quite work. It didn't work. Why didn't it work? Because I didn't get that feeling that I could trust this person to fit into my organization and be a really productive team member. What I got was somebody who clearly knew their stuff, but left me, left me wondering whether or not they would be the right person for my organization. So that person at the other side of the table had not done sufficient work to prepare themselves so that it became clear when they came in that I'm the candidate you can trust more than any other. Yes, I'm good at my job, but so are they. I've done the, I've done the work to show you that I can do this. And then really fascinating because you talk about trust and I think probably one of the first things I spoke to you about was trust and, and values and things. And it's one of our core values at our consultancy is trust. But, you know, when you break down trust in the trust formula or the trust equation, you know, do you look at it through those lenses and could you recommend people to use those sort of yeah. four terms to, to build I, that I, trust? I, I, I think it goes more than that, but I, I tend to look at it through two broader things, like you know the cognitive trust and the, you know the the effective trust. But but broadly speaking, those four terms that were were, were coined by by um, you know the various guys that wrote the book, the trusted advisor, um, that are a helpful way of looking at um, things like selling and persuasion, because if you're trying to get those trusts, you need to get those things across. You need to get the credibility, the reliability, the the mutuality of interest rather than self-interest and this idea that relationship is a key factor there. So, you know, you need to spend the time building the relationship as, as well. So once you get these things, people can say, well, oh, that's why you've got to do this kind of thing when you're pitching because it, it works towards building trust. So I think it's a helpful, a helpful metaphor for trust, but I think trust is, is a bit more wider and complex than that if you look at it in its totality. Is it Stephen Covey's son, Ed? you know, begin with the end of mind, Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. His son wrote a book on the speed of trust. Yeah. Again, you know, it's another reference. It's one of these things I've, I've got the book there. I've flicked through it once, but not, not read it in any detail. But, you know, it's a fascinating concept in business because trust is so critical. And then at the moment, you can't have face-to-face -face interactions. 
So how do you how do you build trust? How do you get recruited for a job where you're you're interviewing in your attic? You know, it's yeah. it's it's interesting, right? But it's interesting. It's the same the same kind of thing when you're you're pitching for business. It's a, it's a sales job. In one case, you're you're pitching your goods and services. In the other one, you're pitching yourself. So this is one of the things that you know what I talk about is because you've not got all the serendipitous engagement before and after a meeting, etc. You don't have the ability to share a coffee or to walk from the reception desk up to the, the office or whatever. So you don't get to chat about the kids and what you're up to at the weekend and all that kind of thing. So a lot of that goes. So you've got to do that within the body of what you're talking about. And it brings us full circle back to say, well, what's the best way to get people emotionally connected with you is through stories. Yes. So if you've got good business stories that you can tell that talk about you and show your vulnerability and, and then show your tenacity and all these kind of things here, people can connect with you and build trust, even if they didn't have the opportunity to share a coffee with you or a, a, you know, a moment at the water cooler before you sat down for the, the, the Zoom call as it is now. And it's, it's kind of like the, the humble brag in a way. You've got to kind of sew in the fact to demonstrate some value without yeah. sounding like an arse, essentially, and, and yeah, too boastful, yeah. you know? It's kind of... Yeah, yeah. I mean, bo- boasting is, is one of the things, like empty sales phrases, it just puts us off. Yes. So yeah. we should never be doing that. But the converse being is there's no point in being in an interview and somebody say, well, tell me about a time when, and you don't take any credit for the work you did. You've got to say, well, this is what we did. This was what, you know, this was the challenge we faced. This was the outcome we achieved. And this is what the client actually thought about it. But that's not the same as boasting. That's actually giving you a factual account of, of what I did and what I achieved. I'm not saying, look at me, I'm great. I'm saying, look, this is, this is what was done. You know? And it very much comes back to preparation again. You know, you're, you're putting in a bit of thought what's coming at you in terms of an interview and oh, yeah. studying. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly that, James. Exactly that. And I, I got a lot of even, you know, you see your TED talk and it looks very polished and you've got your props and things. But then that was agonizing. You put a shit ton of thought into that. Well, excuse the language. If you, if you, if you watch it again, or you maybe have spotted this already, but but on the floor in front of me, I've got three things. I've got two copies of my storyboard, which is my cheat sheet. And I've got my iPad, which is my timer, which changes color at the right time for me to know to move on to the next section of my cheat sheet. Because I was given 12 minutes. And the tolerance I like to play place when I'm doing these kind of talks is plus or minus five seconds. Hmm. So I finished in 12 minutes and three, three seconds because I used everything I could at my fingertips to make sure that I wasn't going to forget what I was going to say. I was going to make sure I said the things I meant to say that I practiced in the right order and that I knew how quickly I needed to say them to make sure that I stayed on time all the way through to the last minute. And that last minute when I slowed down at the end there, that was to let the clock run up to say when I said you can talk about core values or you can do them. And that was it. I thought, bang, right, we're there or on time. So there is a lot of work goes into it and there's a lot of kind of science behind it as to why you would use in, the, in that talk, I'd use two stories, a four minute story and a seven minute story and a one minute finish. That was it. Yeah. Structure's dead simple. And each of the stories is structured exactly the same way as Pixar um, structure their stories, but they just happen to be business stories rather than you know fantasy stories. I find it on Disney Plus, there's these shorts, like short movies now. And it might only be you know, six, seven, eight minutes, but it's a fascinating story for adults to get some inspiration from and a kid that's gripped by it. You know, It's, it's well worth checking out. But uh, yeah, I, I find that even your, your TED Talk, that was a bloody stressful day for you though, was it? Oh yeah. Yeah, you, you, yeah. You've, I mean, you've got the BBC film crew there. 
We'd done the rehearsals the night before. So for instance, the bit where I dropped to the eye, we had to rehearse where I was going to accidentally drop the eye so that the cameraman would know where to film it. Mm. So that all had to be practiced. Um, but then you walk onto a stage and you've got, you know, I think it was 1200 people or something there in front of you. Um, I, it's scary for anybody. So having the right opening line, you know, it was the day before Star Wars Day in the year 2000, which is my opening line. Um, having that in there and thinking, once I get started, I will be fine. Mm. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll follow all the principles and I'll do all the things I, I want to do. And I'll bring in the props and do all that kind of stuff and things like that. But yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a daunting task. So you don't treat it lightly. You treat it professionally. And the amount of work that I put into that is commensurate with the amount of work that you should be putting into a potential interview for a job. Yes. And uh, it was even, I don't suppose there'll be many, you know, leadership talks, they can just ramble on any, <laughs> any length of time with perhaps. But so even that time factor was, was probably critical to the pressure a bit. So, so we're, I mean, I'm doing a talk this week um, online for a conference and they said, look, can you, we'll give you an hour to cover it. I'm going, no, if it's online, an hour is, is it feels like three hours face to face. Mm. So I want it to be shorter. So my talk, I want to fit into a 20 minute slot. Now I'm happy to take questions afterwards, but I'm not going to talk for an hour because I know that for an hour, despite my best efforts, people will be reading their emails, you know, looking at their Tinder account, playing Candy Crush, whatever they do, uh, whilst I'm talking through their screen. Whereas for 20 minutes, if I can be interesting enough and I can be useful enough in terms of information, I might just be able to hold their attention. We had, uh, I hosted uh, my last job at the company that was working before, um, before I quit to start, start the company, our consultancy. Uh, we did an EPUB during lockdown and we managed to get, it was 40 of the staff to attend and we got, uh, the highest ranking um, uh, black marine in, in history uh, to, to come and speak at the talk, you know, just the same engaging with them on LinkedIn. And he's such an incredible bloke. He was with uh, Sir Clive Woodward uh, prior to the England World Cup campaign. He was with Gareth Southgate prior to the, the England's latest World Cup campaign. He's good friends with Gareth Southgate to the day. And he's telling all these stories from the Marines and sport about culture, about values, about leadership. And just how powerful it was, because everyone on the Zoom call was just gripped, you know? It was like yeah, um, yeah. impressive. That's the, that's the exception, though, James. You, you know what it's like being on these calls, you know? Um, yeah. It, especially if there's a lot of people on the call, it's quite easy to begin to drift away a little bit and to be able to say, well, I've got other stuff I need to be getting on with, so I'll just do that in the meantime. It's different when it's one-to-one or when it's one to a very small number. But yes. unless you've got somebody with an exceptional story or other people who have got, Maybe not exceptional stories, but are exceptional storytellers. Yeah, and I think we're in this phase of Zoom fatigue now where we're staring yeah. at these things all day and it can be, yeah, it can play havoc on you. You know, you're tired and fatigued, you know, so it's, uh, yeah, it, I, I take your point. Yeah, short and sweet is a good, good way to go with stories. And on that front, I think we should draw this to a... To, Definitely. Uh, yeah. And uh, congratulations, your plumbers have obviously done a good job to finish for the day there. They obviously have. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully there's not water in the floor through the house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, nice speaking to you as always, Bob. Yeah. And you, James. Talk soon. Take care. All the best. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. Bye-bye. It's always great to hear from you, Bob. Thanks for the great chat. Next episode is one of the Northeast's brightest stars and media personalities, Kirsten Gove, former newsreader on North Tonight. Find out more about what we do at mostly.consulting.
Thanks for listening to Mostly Talk. Find us online at mostly.consulting. And if you enjoyed today's show, why not leave us a review or tell a friend? 